Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to be with you. Today is going to be a really fun episode. We are going to do for you the 2018 Sunstone presentation on the gold plates. So the conversation, so again, this is July 12th, and in a couple of weeks, I'll be at uh, the Sunstone uh, Symposium doing two presentations, one on faith development, the other one having a conversation on the gold plates. And so today what I wanted to do was record that presentation and release it at the same time that the Sunstone presentation is being done so that all of you are getting a chance to hear the same material. And I'm telling you, it's interesting. So to get started, the the conversation I want to have today is the idea of the debate within Mormonism of was there a physical object and what was that physical object? And can we look at the data objectively and come to a decision on one, if there were a set of plates, because there may not have been, and there may have been. And second, if there were a set of plates, are we talking an ancient Nephite record or something else? And uh, I was on the phone with Dan Vogel yesterday and having a really interesting conversation with him. And in that conversation, it became clear to me that I need to preface this material with this, which is that you have to, as you dive into this data, you have to be able to hold several um, data points in your mind as you go through the rest of the data. Here's what I mean. As we go through the description of the plates, the, the height and length and width, the weight, the color, what they felt like, what they sounded like, all of those details, you have to keep some things in mind. One is that the three witnesses claim to have a spiritual experience and they do not claim outside of that spiritual vision to have seen the plates at any other time. Now, again, they may have. So their testimony is important to uh, understand and to recognize what has been said by them. But the reality is, if you're trying to be a historian and you're looking at Martin Harris, David Whitmer, and Oliver Cowdery's statements on what the plates looked like, felt like, what they weighed, how they were put together, the the his, you know the historical analysis says these three men claim to have had a spiritual vision of the plates, so their physical description of them in a historical sense does not count. You have to keep that in mind, number one. Number two, a lot of commentary will come from Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt is very scientifically minded. He is uh, going out and gathering statements from all the witnesses. One, Orson Pratt was not there. That's crucial. Number two is he is gathering these statements from the witnesses late. And that's important because you have to recognize that all of these early members of the church who are talking about what the plates look like, they have had privately numerous conversations with each other and with others. And those conversations, whether we like it or not, impacts their memory of what this was about. So for instance, 
if the event happened when it did, and now Orson Pratt is interviewing these men 20 years later, 25 years later, whatever it is, we have to recognize that if those early witnesses of the plates, whatever that witness experience is, as they've spoke back and forth to each other, their memory and their own recollection has been altered. Now, that's a fact. Now, does that mean we shouldn't trust them? I'm not saying that at all. But these are things you have to keep in mind as you go through the material. So when I start the presentation out at Sunstone, the, the, I've got a, a PowerPoint here, and obviously you're not going to see that. Um, but it's important to recognize that there are various images of the plates out there. The church and its art department have put out numerous images of the gold plates. Plus, there have been people who have made replicas. Uh, there's just various kinds of drawings and uh, animated uh, pictures of, of the plates. So what we generally see, and I, I want to just put this out there, is that uh, when you look at all of these pictures, you'll notice there's some things that stand out. One is that there is a portion of the plates that is sealed. And, and I would just suggest, maybe as you're going through this PowerPoint, pull up a computer. And as I speak about some of these images, maybe you can do a search and kind of see generally what I'm talking about at various places. Uh, a portion of the plates are sealed. And the sealed portion, the way most of the art pieces show these plates being sealed is with metal banded strips wrapping around the section of the plates that are sealed. The other thing I want to note, when you look at the, uh, the drawings, the artwork, the paintings, the, the animated picture, whatever it is, you'll also notice the size of the plates. And I simply want to say that as we go through the material, you're going to recognize that the size of the plates, if there were plates, and if people saw them, and, and if this is what they were, the size of them is much different than how these pictures depict uh, the plates. So let's start with the width and length of the metal plates. And again, all we're doing is we're going back into the all the statements that have been said. And I have picked out the ones that are the most interesting and also the ones that best represent the general consensus. And so I'm not trying to share all of the quotes, but I think I've been very objective in presenting to you the general uh, recollection collectively of the witnesses, what is the most uh, held position on each of these points of view, as well as sharing anything that stood out as interesting and out of place. So on the width and length of the plates, Martin Harris, Martin Harris said seven inches wide by eight inches in length. David Whitmer said about eight inches long, seven inches wide. So those two are the same. Uh, Orson Pratt, again, Whitmer and Harris had a spiritual vision, best we know. Did they see the plates while the translation was occurring? Maybe. But the, but the wording of Joseph, the wording of these witnesses, is that these plates were never out in the open. They were never permitted to see them which is why the visionary experience that Whitmer, Harris, and Cowdery had was so special to them. Because it was this chance uh, 
to have this ability to see these things that have been withheld from them for so long. And again, now we get to Orson Pratt, who is not a firsthand witness, and all he is is a collector of witness statements. So he's sharing what others have told him. He absolutely, no ifs, ands, or buts, did not see the plates. Him and his brother Parley don't join the church until after the Book of Mormon is published. Remember the story. Parley Pratt stays up all night reading the Book of Mormon. Sleep was an enemy. Food was an enemy. He simply wanted to read the Book of Mormon all through the night, and that's his first interaction with uh, this, uh, the restored gospel, this work. So Orson Pratt says, quote, Each plate was not far from seven by eight inches in width and length. And so you'll notice Pratt here is representing the general consensus. Um, Joseph, Smith, Joseph Smith himself speaks on this in the Wentworth letter. Um, I've got a page number of 707. Uh, I don't know if that's part of uh, a product of other writings as well, because 707 seems like a really far distant page uh, for the Wentworth letter to have. But Joseph Smith says, quote, six inches wide by eight inches long. Now, Again, the consensus is seven by eight, but Joseph Smith, the one person who would have had the most interaction with these plates, save perhaps Mormon and Moroni, uh, says six inches wide by eight inches long. That's in the Wentworth letter. So we can go with seven by eight, um, but I think in some ways we ought to trust the prophet Joseph Smith here as he makes the plates a little smaller than the general consensus. Again, Harris and Whitmer likely did not actually see them physically, and Pratt is just repeating what was told to him. The thickness of the plates. We get two comments here. Orson Pratt says something near six inches in thickness, a part of which was sealed. Uh, Martin Harris says when piled one above the other, they were all together about four inches thick. So Pratt says six inches in thickness. Martin Harris says four inches thick. So somewhere in the neighborhood of six by eight and a thickness of four to six inches. But again, Harris and Pratt, how much can we trust their testimony on this issue? Would those testimonies hold up in court knowing what we know about their witness experience? How much did the plates weigh? Martin Harris says, quote, weighing all together from 40 to 60 pounds. William Smith. Now, this is important. William Smith is the brother of the prophet. He is not one of the scribes for translation, as far as I know. He is not one of the witnesses. But what William Smith is, being the brother of the prophet, he is going to be, throughout this translation process, at times, in close proximity with the prophet Joseph Smith. William Smith says, quote, I was permitted to lift them. They weighed about 60 pounds according to the best of my judgment. Another note that's important, when you go back to this time period, these people worked the land. These people worked with their hands. They carried things. They would carry a 40 or 50 or 60 pound bag of supplies. They would have had a much better feel for what something weighed than you or I generally would have. Now, yes, there are people today in professions who have to carry certain kinds of weights around. 
And those people would have a very good feel as well. But generally, most of us in our day-to-day lives aren't picking up on a regular basis consistently a 50-pound bag of something. These guys did. And so when these guys tell you a weight, I'm more prone to trust that. In fact, I know for myself, like when I pick up something, I often gauge it to be heavier than what it actually is. Maybe that's because I'm a weakling. I don't know. But I don't do well at judging the weight of something. I think we ought to trust these guys when they say they lifted an object. Now, that doesn't mean the object was uncovered. The object was often wrapped up with some kind of a sheet or cloth or would have been inside a, a wood box. But that said, I think we ought to trust when they say they were permitted to lift these things in what they said the weight was. Again, William Smith says 60 pounds to the best of his judgment. William Smith also said they were much heavier than a stone and very much heavier than wood. As near as I could tell, about 60 pounds. Now, I want to stop here and share something. I work in a pawn shop, and in a pawn shop, I deal with precious metals. And so I deal with one ounce gold rounds. I deal with one ounce silver rounds. We've got a hundred ounce silver bar here in my store. When you pick up the silver bar, the silver bar is the size of a small brick. But when you pick the silver bar up, it is heavy. Now, gold has more weight than silver. Gold can be in a smaller amount and have the same weight. What I'm getting at is that there is this idea that you would have been able to recognize that something has more mass to it. That there's more weight, more, more, uh, in just a smaller section of something, there's more weight. There's no doubt to me that if I picked up a box with a silver bar in it, or I picked up a box that was a little bigger, that had wood in it, that weighed the same thing, I would be able to tell the difference because of my experience with precious metals that something in the in the one box had more mass more weight per cubic foot for instance than than the other object so i would take seriously here when william smith says that it was heavier than stone these guys would be picking up rocks they know what kind of weight um and again i'm not saying they know what a cubic foot of rock weighs but they understood if they held a cubic foot of stone they understand the difference of that versus a cubic foot of some kind of metal. So it was heavier than stone, very much heavier than wood. But again, he says 60 pounds. Martin Harris says weighing all together from 40 to 60 pounds. Um, I'm, I'm much more prone here to trust William Smith, although I think it is likely that Martin Harris would have at least at some point picked up the plates or whatever object it was underneath the cloth. More to how much they weighed. This is important too, because um, it's one thing for, you know, a dude to pick up these plates and to kind of guess how much they weigh. It's another thing when we start telling who moved them around and we recognize like, okay, there's got to be a limit to the weight because it has to be movable by um, not only Emma Smith, which we're going to get to, but also younger people. Uh, Here's one. Emma Smith says, quote, I moved them from place to place on the table as it was necessary in doing my work. Uh, Joseph Smith's sister, Catherine, 
while she was dusting in the room where he had been translating, quote, hefted those plates which were covered with a cloth and found them very heavy. This is H.S. Salisbury uh, paraphrasing Catherine Smith Salisbury. So Catherine Smith marries a Salisbury, but she is the sister of the prophet Joseph Smith. Martin Harris says, my daughter said they were about as much as she could lift. They were now in the glass box, and my wife said they were very heavy. They both lifted them. Um, you, you'll always recognize that often, if not always, the plates are covered up by a cloth inside a box. This comment about a glass box is strange to me. I don't know what that means. I don't know if there was a certain kind of thing called a glass box, but I don't think it would be fair to assume that by glass box they mean put into a box made of glass. That just, that isn't, that's not the right answer. Because obviously, number one, you'd see the plates. Number two, I don't think such a thing would have existed, like an aquarium. I don't think such a thing would have existed at this time. So a glass box means something else. If someone wants to send me a message and fill me in, please do. I could do a simple Google search, but I haven't spent any time on that yet. I might between now and Sunstone. But Martin Harris talks about his daughter and his wife lifting them and them being very heavy. I would I would note, if any of you have not lifted 50, 60 pounds, it's heavy. It's bearable. It's doable. But it's about the extreme end of what a teenager or a, uh, a woman uh, could do and begins to get even really uncomfortable for a, for a man who even of physical strength uh, to do easily. Like, it's not something you want to be doing. It's heavy. Uh, the individual plates... Emma Smith says, quote, they seem to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb as one sometimes thumbs the edges of a book. So Emma here is noting that whatever is under the cloth, again, she doesn't say she sees them. She says she's permitted to feel them under the cloth. So we should trust what she's feeling, but we also recognize that doesn't mean that this object is what we in the church claim it to be. But we should note that these leaves or pages of these plates, these plates, these individual plates, would be thin enough to be pliable, to be able to have some movement to them, flexibility, as if you're turning the page of a book, but not quite like a page, right? Like metal, she knows it's metal. If you turned it like the page of a book, you would crease it, you would bend it, you would put a kink in it, but it's not so thick that it stays rigid. Uh, David Whitmer says about as thick as parchment. Uh, Martin Harris says of the thickness of plates of tin. Um, Joseph Smith himself says each plate was six inches wide and eight inches long and not quite so thick as common tin. Um, he also says they were bound together in a volume as leaves of a book with three rings running through the hole. The volume was something near six inches in thickness. I want to make a note here. Uh, Dan Vogel has speculated that, and this is in his writings, this is not in my conversation with him the other day. In his writings, he speculates that Joseph may be trying to throw us off the scent by actually telling us what they were made of. 
In other words, by saying not quite so thick as common tin, he's eliminating tin, but also recognizing that the thickness is extremely similar. So if, if you're one who's feeling the plates under the cloth and Joseph tells you that, you're likely to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. They're almost, almost as thick as tin. The reality is they very well might be tin. And I think that's at least something you have to store in the back of your mind as we go through this. Um, Joseph also here makes the comment about being uh, something near six inches in thickness. So again, we've got six foot, or I'm sorry, six inches wide, eight inches long, um, and a thickness of six inches. What was the content or the material? Uh, Joseph Smith Jr. says the appearance of gold. David Whitmer says golden plates. And you get that a lot through these quotes where they are um, spoken about, not necessarily saying like, hey, these plates are made from the material we know as gold. Rather, they're often pointing to perhaps the color more than the material, but at the very least, we recognize it's ambiguous. There's a level of ambiguity here that allows a faithful believer to say, look, they're not talking about actual gold. They're just saying they have the appearance of gold or they're golden, meaning their color. But there's a couple quotes that are really interesting. One is William Smith. William Smith says the plates were, quote, a mixture of gold and copper, unquote. Now, I don't know where he gets this from. But again, William has a close enough interaction because it's his brother that he's hefting the plates, he's getting a chance to kind of feel them underneath the cloth. But somewhere along the way, something is said to him or is seen by him and he makes a connection or is told the connection that they are a mixture of gold and copper. I think that's important. And so these are one of those comments that I make a real important note of. The apologist here loves this one because one of the apologetic uh, arguments is that the material of the gold plates would have been a product known as tumbaga, which was a metal used in South America contemporary to the time of the proposed uh, Nephites and Lamanites. And it would have been a mixture of gold and copper, and it would help us to deal much more with the weight of the plates. And we'll get to that in a moment. The, the question we have to ask, because apologists say, look, nobody's claiming that these plates were gold. Everybody's pointing to either in some ambiguous way or specifically to the color being yellowish, golden, of a, a golden appearance. Um, that's not true. And I don't think we should let the apologist off the hook so easy. Here's why. If you were to ask yourself who would know this better than anyone? The answer is Moroni. Now, Moroni, in Joseph Smith's history, not the history of the church, the seven-volume set, but the, but the Joseph Smith history, which is in uh, your uh, quad or in your uh, Pearl of Great Price, if you open that up to chapter 1, verse 33 and 34, Here's Joseph Smith telling you his experience with the angel Moroni. Quote, he called me by name 
And he said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. He said, There was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, and the source from which they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Now, this is Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verse 33. Here's the issue. I don't think it's fair for any apologist to make the argument that Moroni is pointing out the color. That seems... That seems ridiculous. That seems absurd. It seems silly that Moroni would be like, look, Joseph, there's some blue plates. There's some purple plates. You know, I've got some green plates. No, he's not talking about color. When Moroni says there's a book deposited written upon gold plates, this only makes reasonable sense if Moroni is pointing out that they're written on this valuable material. Now, we can debate what is gold. Maybe gold is eight carat with a bunch of other materials in it. But I don't think it's fair to dismiss Moroni as saying this is on gold plates. So History of the Church 133, Moroni himself. He is now a post-mortal being. So he's getting his information directly from God. This is a post-mortal being who, while in his mortality held these plates, put engravings on these plates, protected these plates. Of all the people we're going to read about today, that you're going to listen to me read the quotes from, if we trust anyone on this on this product and hold them to their words, it is Moroni. Now, what this brings up is a concern in Mormonism, which is the weight of the plates. A cubic foot of gold, now we're talking 24 karat gold, but I think it's important to recognize, again, dealing in the business that I deal in as a manager of a pawn shop and dealing with precious metals and buying gold jewelry and silver jewelry all the time, I call 24 karat gold gold, but I also call 18 karat gold gold. And I also call 14 karat gold gold. And I call 10 karat gold gold. And what about 8 karat? Yes, it's still gold. So at some point, we might say it has a little bit of gold in it. But at some kind of threshold, it becomes gold, even with the majority of that product being something else. 14 karat gold is just over 50% gold. It's 0.585. So when you recognize that 14 karat gold is just more than 50% gold, and yet 10 karat gold, which is less than 50%, we still call it gold. Now, what we don't know, and I'm not trying to get off into the weeds here, but what we don't know is if we, if we allow the assumption that Moroni is a real ancient person who lived, that he really did write on plates, and he really did consider these plates gold. What we don't know is the standard by which he would have gone by but there's also another hiccup. Today in the modern world, it's not a big deal to take multiple metals and melt them together and create alloys. In Moroni's day, I'm not saying that they didn't do that 
or that it was impossible. But it was, I think, I think it's fair to say, to some extent, less done. Like you took the metal out of the ground and you utilized it. And probably less often than today would you have melded it and mixed it with other things. Again, I grant that they did it. Tumbaga is a perfect example of that. I just think it's less so. And I think when someone is pointing to gold in the ancient day, my gut tells me that they're pointing to the actual gold they find in the earth. And like Tumbaga, the moment they mix it with something else, they create a new name for it. Now, 24 karat gold weighs 1,206 pounds, almost 1,207 pounds per cubic foot. If we grant that the Nephite gold plates were 6 inches by 8 inches by 4 inches, you end up being about 11% of a cubic foot, meaning that the plates end up weighing about 135 to 140 pounds if they're 24 karat gold. The moment you start allowing the gold to be less than 24 karat, let's say you make it 8 karat, and you're mixing it with something like copper. Copper, for instance, weighs 559 pounds per cubic foot. So if the majority of the product is 75% copper, and 25% gold. I do think it's a struggle for Moroni to still call that gold, but the weight becomes much more reasonable in making it the 40 to 60 pounds in what these plates need to weigh for people to be able to lift them and to move them around and to know that they weigh between 40 and 60 pounds. Just for interest here, because I think the, the three most likely candidates are gold, copper, and tin. Now there's other things like lead as well. So copper by itself would work out really well. Copper, if you allow it to be essentially 11% of that cubic foot weight, you end up with about 65 pounds. But you also have to recognize when you're talking about these plates, that if there's individual plates, there's also a certain amount of air in between each plate. So it's not a solid metal. Maybe it's 90%, maybe it's 95%, but it's a little less than taking simply the 6 by 8 by 4 and assuming it's just a solid block of metal. So you can discount a little bit of that weight. And so now, once you do that, you get copper down to the 40 to 60 pound range. Even with 25% gold in there, it still tends to hover a little higher than that 40 to 60 pounds. And so it's really hard to allow for any percentage of gold that's not super insignificant, right? Like it's one thing to say like 2% gold. That doesn't make any sense. Again, Moroni tells us it's gold plates. How much gold has to be there for him to claim it's gold? We don't know. But is it safe to say at least 25%? And if we allow 25% of gold, the weight tends to be just you know, 15, 20, 25 pounds heavier than what we need those plates to weigh to match the descriptions that people are giving. So the next, the next idea then would be that it's only copper. And if it's only copper, 
we can get down to about that 60 pound range if we allow for the smaller, smallest size of those plates. If we use the six by seven by eight, even copper begins to get a borderline of fitting into that weight. It would turn out to be about 65, 70 pounds, maybe 75 pounds. That begins to be a bit too much. Tin, on the other hand, works perfectly. Tin is the most common metal that could have been used for this. It would have already come in these uh, sheets that are just less than one millimeter. Um, tin would have been easy enough to get. It, it would have been accessible to the smiths, and we'll get into some of that here in a moment. But tin has a cubic foot weight of 455 pounds. If you allow for the plates to be about 11% of that, you end up at about 50 pounds. And then if you allow a little bit of space in between the pages, you can easily get down to the 40 pound mark. And so even if you go to the high end of the six by seven by eight, you're still below the 60 pound mark. Tin works out perfectly. So what about the etchings or engravings? John Whitmer says there were fine engravings on both sides. John Whitmer is one of the eight witnesses we claim, and it's still slightly problematic as well, if you go back into the quotes of the eight witnesses, it's not as consistent as you would like it to be to be able to, with certainty, say these guys claim to have a physical experience. It just isn't that safe to say. When you read all the quotes, and you can go back into uh, an episode that I recorded uh, maybe a couple of years ago with Chris Bloxham and Clay Bloxham, where we talk about the Book of Mormon Witnesses. And in that episode, uh, we discuss at length these eight witnesses and show that their testimonies have some conflict to them. There's some contradiction there. But recognize that John Whitmer is one of the eight witnesses. He's one of the men having a physical experience. He says, quote, at least that's the claim. He says, quote, there were fine engravings on both sides. Fine engravings on both sides. That much we know, right? We know that's the standard. What is important to note with this is that whatever metal it is, it has to be thick enough that you can etch these marks into one side and not have it be poking through or distorting too deeply the surface of the other side. So again, Emma says these were somewhat pliable. Um, I've worked with in construction when I was back in college, uh, going to Bowling Green State University in Ohio. I, uh, I worked uh, for my father-in-law doing construction and we built garages. And when we did the, the roof, uh, we had to use aluminum flashing. And aluminum flashing kind of had that just slightly pliable um, but also I think was thick enough that you could etch something into one side without it distorting the other. And so I think it's important to keep in mind, like, again, you have to almost collectively hold all this information and, and try to make as much sense out of it as you can. Um, that aluminum flashing, that thickness, that hardness is what I picture in my mind, what these leaves would have had to have been in terms of their the metal uh, thickness and, and the hardness that was present there. Uh, William Smith says the characters were cut into the plates with some sharp instrument. 
Um, and again, William, when he says that, that indicates that he saw the plates and saw the writing on them. That's a pretty specific description that on some level he's claiming to have seen the plates relatively up close. But I guess you could make room for someone to have told him that, including his brother. Uh, Orson Pratt said, quote, and this is an important one. Notice this. Upon each side of the leaves of these plates, there were fine engravings which were stained with black, with a black hard stain, so as to make the letters more legible and easier to read. Um, when I was talking to uh, Dan Vogel yesterday, uh, Dan says that he doesn't trust this quote at all from Orson Pratt because Orson would have been intimately familiar with the Charles Anton uh, transcript. And the Anton transcript is this uh, foolscap paper uh, which would have had the characters on them written in black ink. And that image of that, of that transcript may have influenced Orson Pratt's uh, memory or understanding of what he'd been told about these plates. I, I'm not a big fan of that. And no offense to Dan Vogel, but I think there's another way to see uh, the, these, this black stain on the engravings, and we'll get to that later. But I think it serves a purpose um, in, in the conclusion that I'm going to draw when we get to the end. So now we need to talk about the sealed portion. There's, there's debate here. Um, when you look, as, if you look at the documents as a historian... What you find is that when you go to the Book of Mormon and the authors there are claiming that God wants Moroni to seal the plates and also seal the interpreters, the understanding by adding the interpreters and the other things to the commentary is that God is not asking Moroni to actually seal a portion of the plates, um, that it's, it's more... Uh, it, it means something different than the way the witnesses understood the plates being sealed. But we ought to recognize that those contemporary to Joseph Smith saw the plates as having a portion that was literally sealed. Again, we ought to recognize that the images, the majority of images, show that these plates were sealed with a metal banded strip that wrapped around the sealed section so as to make it impossible to open that section without breaking or cutting those bands. The quotes we have on the sealed section, David Whitmer, quote, a large portion of the leaves were so securely bound together that it was impossible to separate them. So there's a recognition that whatever is binding them, that it is, they are so tight, it is so tight that there's no way to even get a peek in between those leaves. There's just no space. There's no way to create space. Uh, David Whitmer also says, what there was sealed appeared as solid to my view as wood. About half of the book was sealed. So here he says half the book, and he says it's as solid to my view as wood. Um, but also notice he says it appeared. And again, recognizing that Whitmer sees the plates in a visionary form 
is the only thing we can really with certainty say. Whether he had any physical interaction with the plates is complete speculation, and there seems to be no evidence for that other than you or me simply wanting to make space for it. Orson Pratt says about two-thirds were sealed up, and Joseph was commanded not to break the seal. That part of the record was hit up. The plates which were sealed contained an account of those things shown unto the brother of Jared. So the, to break the seal, uh, again, could that be bans? Maybe. But the, the better interpretation that most folks who look at all of these quotes in their totality, what they come up with is rather than there being any kind of a band around this section, it, if, if we're to go off these quotes, the more likely interpretation was that there was some kind of encapsulating material, that this section of the plates would have been dipped into some kind of molten metal or some kind of wax so that as that compound dried, these, this section of the plates would have been um, encapsulated with some kind of material that was now hardened uh, and would need to be melted or somehow um, softened to be able to remove it so that these plates could be opened up. But again, we're really going off just the one quote about being solid like wood. The, the next thing we need to talk about is the rings that bound the volume. Um, we get several interesting quotes here. Uh, and one of them I, I just I find intriguing. But uh, David Whitmer says they were fastened with rings thus. And then he makes a sketch, uh, shows the ring in the shape of a capital D with six lines drawn through the straight side of the letter to represent the leaves of the record. So there's this idea that it's just, if you can just picture this big giant letter D, capital D, uh, that that's the shape these, these rings would have been in that held all these plates together. David Whitmer says, bound together like the leaves of a book by massive rings passing through the back edges. Whitmer says again, quote, they were bound together in the shape of a book by three gold rings. Again, gold doesn't work. And he's saying gold rings, again, we could say he's talking about color, but gold itself doesn't work. It's too soft, too malleable. To have it be the item, the material that holds these plates together, uh, you're asking for trouble. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Martin Harris gives us something different, though. Martin Harris says, quote, put together on the back by three silver rings so that they would open like a book. Uh, Orson Pratt says, through the back of the plates were three rings which held them together and through which a rod might be easily passed, serving as a greater convenience for carrying them. The construction and form of the plates being similar to the gold, brass, and lead plates of ancient Jews in Palestine. And again, that's Orson Pratt. Note that even in his day, they're aware of writings on some other metal plates, both gold, brass, as well as lead. Notice, too, that he says that these rings would have been big enough that they would be able to have a rod placed through them. Uh, to, in order to carry them, for Moroni to carry them, or for Joseph to carry them, or for anybody. Um, again, that adds weight to this kind of massive capital D. That's a really good shape uh, 
to try and accomplish that with. Um, there's also, I want to um, also read a quote here. Uh, in 1877, Edward Stevenson interviewed David Whitmer, uh, age 72, who recounted the story that his mother, Mary Musselman Whitmer, told him of being shown the plates by a heavenly messenger. Whitmer presumably drew the simple diagram which Stevenson copied into his diary. So the quote I gave you from Whitmer about the large capital D, you need to recognize that Whitmer is not telling you that because that's his observation. Rather, he's passing along what his mother saw in vision. The next morning, David's mother saw the person at the shed, and he took the plates from a box and showed them to her. She said they were fastened with rings thus, and then there's the capital D with the six lines going through. He turned the leaves over. This was a satisfaction to her. This is the vision that David Whitmer's mother had in her interaction with Moroni, showing her the plates. Notice, too, there is comments about half the plates being sealed to two-thirds of the plates being sealed. And that's going to be important when we have a conversation here later as well. Uh, back to, to this, uh, this discussion. <clears throat> um, skills and resources. So if we're going to make the argument that Moroni is not a, a real historical being, and there really weren't ancient plates, but that there had to be a, an item, there had to be a tangible object, and that object obviously had to be created contemporary, uh, either by Joseph Smith or by somebody else who's assisting him. And so I'm not, going, I'm not here making the argument that this is how it happened. I simply want to open up space for conversation for you to understand how easy it could have been done. So skills and resources. Oliver Cowdery, uh, we, we know based on... We can simply go to LDS.org to get this, but we know based on the data that Oliver Cowdery, prior to his interaction with Joseph Smith, had engaged in blacksmithing. So Oliver Cowdery had experience as a blacksmith. He knew how to work with metals. He knew what that involved. One such quote says Oliver was a 22-year-old native of Vermont. One year younger than Joseph, he had a solid education. His background included work in farming, blacksmithing, and as a store clerk. It's also important to note that Joseph Smith Sr. was a cooper. In their first years on the farm, the Smiths also had to build miles of fences to protect their crops from roaming animals, dig and line wells with rock to provide for the family's water needs, construct outbuildings such as a threshing barn, cooper shop, tool shed, and privy. So it's important to note that the Smith family, specifically Joseph Smith Sr., had um, abilities to work with these kinds of materials. A cooper, by the way, is a person who's trained to make wooden barrels, vats, buckets, tubs, troughs, and other star, uh, staved containers, essentially taking wood and shaping it in a way that it fits very tightly with the next piece of wood. And there's a cooper who does the wood part, and then there's the hooper. And the hooper is the person who wraps the metal around the barrel so as to tighten it up, right? To tighten it just that little last little notch. 
the hooper almost always was an apprentice to the cooper. In other words, the cooper was the higher skill level. The hooper took less skill. So anybody who was a cooper also could be a hooper. I know they rhyme. I know that sounds kind of silly. But it's important to recognize that anybody who can do the job of a cooper could also almost assuredly do the job of a hooper. The cooper worked with the wood. The hooper is the one who worked with the metal in order to make it um, work around the barrels. Again, access to uh, thin, pliable, but yet also thick enough pieces of metal would have been something that the smiths had easy access to. And whether it's uh, tin or other metallic compounds, the reality is that if we say like, if we're going to draw the conclusion that there are other possibilities besides this being an ancient artifact, that there are materials aplenty to be able to uh, have access to to create those plates. On uh, the church's website, you can actually find a picture of the uh, restored cooper shop that sat on the Smith's property with a barrel sitting right in the doorway. Again, the Smiths and Cowdery both had the ability and access to the materials to create a simple set of plates. Again, plates that would likely not endure a critical inspection, but which could sit underneath a cloth and be convincing from that standpoint. Um, in the presentation, I also present a picture of Joseph Smith Sr. I shouldn't say a picture. It's a artist's rendering of Joseph Smith Sr. and the Smith boys um, doing the Cooper and the Hooper uh, responsibilities and making barrels. So again, they've got access to these metal bands. Um, and again, tin was common in their day. The, the next thing I want to talk about is what are the possible material candidates? We've talked about copper. There were copper plates in print shops. Print shops used copper plates uh, as part of the letter press, which would have been the, the piece of metal that they would have stuck the letters on that would have then been pressed into the paper with ink on it. These copper plates would have been discarded once they were used. They were often just thrown out the back, thrown away. Uh, the, the trouble with copper is that, generally speaking, most of these print shops, the copper plates they used were incredibly thick. In the presentation, I've got pictures of these copper plates. They're way too thick to match the description of what these witnesses are talking about. Um, the positives are that the size, 6 by 8, 7 by 8, would have been similar to what these copper plates would have been used. Um, but it's also important to recognize that there are some of these copper plates that are much thinner. And so while not the norm, thin copper plates did exist and they were available, though harder to get, not as often used, harder to come by. But there's also another important facet of copper, which makes copper really interesting. Um, it's the idea that copper can be given the appearance of gold. So I don't want to go through the, the specifics of this uh, formula, but it's actually quite simple. Essentially, what you do is you zinc plate the copper first, 
And that process takes about 10 minutes. And these are this is a process that would have been understood by a blacksmith, by a metal worker, contemporary to Joseph Smith. It would have been a trick that they could have used to play games on people and say like, haha, look at this, I can turn this into gold. It would have been an, a, a commonly understood uh, chemical process by those who had expertise in working with metals. It's That's important to note because if it's something that's just a recent you know, the last hundred years we've come to understand this, then you're using a process that Joseph would not have had access to. That's not the case here. Essentially, you are to zinc plate this copper, and by zinc plating it, you take the copper and you give it a silver color. Then you take this silver-colored piece of copper that's now zinc plated, and you heat it up. And if you apply the heat... In, at the right amount, you're not too cold, you're not too hot, and there's some room for air there. It's not, a, it's not something that has to be like perfected to the degree. You add some heat, and you be careful not to overheat it. This silver zinc-plated copper now takes on a peculiar yellow-gold color. Um, it, it would pass the eye test as being gold but it would only be on the surface. So it's actually a piece of copper that through a chemical process has the surface of it taking on the color of gold. And I would encourage anybody listening to this, just simply pull up your smart device, pull out your laptop, get on your desktop, and type in something like turning copper into gold, and then go to videos and you'll right away see three pennies. One penny is the copper color, Another penny is now that zinc plated silver color, and the third penny has the yellow gold color to it. So copper is one of the potential candidates. Again, most of the plates were way too thick, um, but there are examples of these copper letter press plates being thin enough to, uh, to work as a, a material for Joseph Smith or someone else to make a contemporary product that would pass as the plates. The second material is tin. Uh, Joseph himself says that uh, the plates were almost as thick as common tin, which tells us that tin is common. Joseph himself is telling us that to get access to tin was easy. Tin is the most easily readily available uh, material for Joseph or someone else to use to create a modern reproduction uh, of the plates. The weight is the best fit. The thickness is just right. Uh, tinsmithing was a relatively common uh, career or uh, job uh, skill in that day. Again, weight and thickness are a great match. The, the barrier to tin is that anybody who sees tin right away knows it's tin. Nobody in that day is going to be fooled by Joseph pulling the cloth off and these folks looking at the plates and examining them with a critical eye for more than uh, a 32nd of a second. And they're going to know right away, this is not what you described, Joseph. This is not the object. The, the other question is, again, access to material Copper plates would have been available, a little harder to get, but certainly uh, reasonable to get them. Tin is the most common, just 
if we are going to argue that nobody actually saw the plates, then 10 becomes the easiest uh, way to make all of this work. But we also ought to recognize that the Erie Canal is being built at this time. I think it's completed in the Rochester area in the mid-1820s. Tons of materials. Um, I don't think it's fair to say, like, this stuff would have been hard for Joseph to get. Uh, I think more importantly is the skill level, the color, the weight, and all of that. If, if folks actually saw these plates, the convincing of them. But to get materials, I don't think is an issue. Um, I don't even know if the skill level is an issue because there's enough skill within the Smith family even uh, to, to justify being able to do this. And again, to make plates, to cut these plates to a general size and to punch a, three holes in each plate, this actually would be a really easy process that even a, a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old could do. Um, the rings would be a little more difficult, uh, but these rods that they would have had, which they would have made nails out of and done other things with, would have been easily accessible as well. It just would have been more of the strength issue to make these rings consistently. Uh, in the presentation, I show the most accurate description, uh, physical like image of what these plates likely looked like. Um, the rings are silver. They're in a large capital D. The plates are about four inches thick, six inches wide, eight inches long. The two-thirds is encapsulated with some material that keeps you from even being able to see the plates underneath that encapsulation. And the plates on top, which make up one-third that are unsealed, um, it looks like there's about 20 to 25 of those plates. And I, I think if you go on Google and you type in Mormon gold plates, if you look through the first 20, 25 images, you'll see this one. Uh, the rings are off to the right. And again, the unsealed portion on top of the two-thirds encapsulated portion. It's interesting to look at. And I think if you had these plates sitting in front of you, you would be surprised at them being much smaller than you had always pictured in your mind. So now comes to the theories and conclusions. This is where I want to kind of wrap up. And I hope you found today interesting. I know it's a little dry. It's a little data-driven. But um, I find it interesting, and I hope you do too. So first, Moroni himself states the plates were gold. I am even struggling. I know in today's world we say eight carat gold is gold. I'm really struggling to acknowledge that anything less than 50% gold in Moroni's day would be understood by him as gold. But Moroni himself says they're gold plates, and I think it's absolutely fair to say that he's not talking about color. He's talking about the material they are made by. So the weight becomes a serious issue for these plates. Second, why seal two-thirds of the plates at all, or half if we want to go that route? But why seal two-thirds of the plates at all? Why does God command the last Nephite who will ever see the plates as one who can actually read them in their original native language? Why does he have to seal a portion to protect it against those who much later will see them but can't read the native language? that they were written in, without God wanting them to read it. In other words, 
if God doesn't want you to read the sealed portion, he simply could have left them unsealed and just not allowed you to have the translation in your mind's eye, right? For instance, we know the story of Joseph Smith coming in to translate on multiple occasions, and because he's not focused, because he's having an argument with Emma, because something's not right in his life, the translation isn't working. And Joseph has to go and get right with God, which also includes getting right with others at times, before he can translate the plates. We can grasp, and again, I know we like to create, but, but, but Bill, but Bill, in this instance, don't do that. Recognize that if God, omnipotent God, doesn't want Joseph Smith to translate the sealed portion, he can simply not allow Joseph to translate the sealed portion, and it can remain unsealed, and he can still accomplish that. There is little reason to seal a portion of these plates to protect them against being translated. A more reasonable understanding of sealing the plates, and encapsulating them, is to keep people who see the plates from seeing what's under that encapsulation. And I'll get to that more in a moment. Why does William Smith have the insight that the plates were both gold and copper? Doesn't that seem strange in light of all the other testimony that divulges golden or gold or the appearance of gold? Why does William Smith come in and say, nah, I'm going to be different than everybody else and I'm going to impose that they were a combination of gold and copper? My, my gut tells me that William caught a glance of something. William saw something that informed him that this wasn't entirely a gold product. To me, that seems odd. Why does Orson Pratt talk about inked stained engravings? Is it as Dan Vogel says? Is it because of the Anton transcript? Or is it possible that the etchings exposed something that then needed to be covered up so as not to be seen? Why does it seem, based on all the quotes and insights collectively, that there is a picture being painted that the plates are almost always, or perhaps always, covered with a cloth or in a box, and if seen, only seen momentarily. Why was there the threat of one being struck dead who looks at the plates without permission? If you look at these objectively and collectively, I think each of these represent a way in which to dissuade people from critically examining the plates. So, if the ink-stained engravings was hiding something underneath that ink, why cover them with a cloth or put them in a box? Why the threat of one being struck dead who looks at the plates without permission? All of those are ways in which to dissuade people from critical examination of the plates. There's also some issues. The sealed two-thirds, or we could say half, the two-thirds is a vision by the brother of Jared regarding the last days. This sealed portion contains the complete record of the vision of the brother of Jared. You can look in Ether chapter 4, 4 through 5. This vision included all things from the foundation of the world unto the end thereof. 2 Nephi 27, 10 through 11, 
See also Ether 325. That's off LDS.org. Think about this for a moment. Do we grasp that the one-third unsealed portion, that one-third turns out to be 600 pages in the original printed Book of Mormon and also would have included the 116 pages of the Book of Lehi, which was written as a manuscript which would have turned into perhaps 150 to 200 pages of printed material. Think about that. The one-third unsealed represents 800 pages of scriptural text, which means the sealed portion, if we go with the two-thirds, the sealed portion represents approximately 15 to 1,600 pages of finished scriptural printed text. Does it seem odd that the brother of Jared, his sealed vision would be approximately the same length as the entire LDS King James version of the Bible? Does that raise any eyebrows? Like that seems really strange to me that this scriptural record would be longer than all the scriptural records ever within Christianity by a single author to the point where it would be almost as long as all the authors of the entire Bible. Doesn't that seem odd that there's already all this reason to not believe that this is an ancient product? And then you add on top of it that if it's real, It also contains the longest known scriptural text by a single author, exponentially greater than any other author, that you're beginning to grasp at straws. You're you're asking for the belief in the absurd. Another issue is weight. We've talked about this. But it's a twofold problem. If it's gold, even if it's eight carat, for instance combined with copper to form an alloy, with two-thirds of the plate sealed, or half, you have an inch and a half of unsealed plates to three inches of unsealed plates. With the leaves being one millimeter thick, around the thickness of common tin, and able to sustain engravings on both sides, you are left with about 30 to 50 metal plates meaning 60 to 100 sides, which has to translate to approximately 800 pages. 600 pages of the original Book of Mormon plus the Book of Lehi. The more plates you have with less air space, and the plates become way too heavy to be lifted and carried per the quotes. Too few plates, too much air in between, And one is left with an impossible amount of words for each symbol to represent beyond any other comparison we have. In essence, both sides of the coin make real plates implausible or at least unreasonable. The most reasonable conclusion is that ancient Nephite plates did not exist. That such is highly implausible. The best explanation is if there were real plates, either A, they were made out of tin and no one ever saw them, 
When you go back and look at the quotes, whether it's Orson Pratt, whether it's William Smith, whether it's the three witnesses or the eight witnesses, there is enough contradiction in the quotes and there's enough understanding of their experiences to eliminate all of them except for the eight as for, for almost certain not having seen the plates. And to the eight, there is so much contradiction in their quotes so as to place on the table the reality that they did not see them. And tin would have been an easy way to put something under a cloth that felt right, that looked appropriate, but without having been seen would have passed inspection. The other option is that Joseph would have created a set of plates out of copper print plates, approximately six by eight, one millimeter thick or less, with four inches in thickness total. That Joseph put them through a chemical process similar to what was explained today, giving them a gold cast, after which he would have placed engravings on them, at least some of them. And seeing the copper now showing through, but knowing he can't reheat the plates, because if you add extra heat to the plates that are already gold in color, that are copper, you will distort the color once again. He cannot do the process again. So what he has to do is cover up the copper engravings because they're showing through. So now he puts some substance on them that hardens and protects the copper from being seen. Realizing along the way that his fabrication didn't look right and that creating the plates were more difficult than he thought, he encapsulates something which looks like It's the plates that are encapsulated, but it makes up two-thirds of his production. Perhaps it's another object. Perhaps they are plates of tin because they're easier to get. All we know for sure is that if the plates were seen, it's only the unsealed portion that has to look like Nephite plates. From that point on, you could have anything that is in the right shape collectively, but encapsulated. So the top third of plates could have been the copper etched and gone through the chemical process. The bottom two thirds could be common tin encapsulated. This would hide what's under that encapsulation. It also brings the weight of the plates down. A combination of copper in tin is almost perfect for the weight. Two-thirds of his production was hidden. What was under that encapsulation does not have to hold up to any scrutiny. Was it metal plates at all? We don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be anything that looks like Nephite plates because it's encapsulated. To further prevent close inspection, knowing that his production has flaws to it, he keeps it under a cloth or in a box and threatens people with being struck dead if they took an intentional peek without permission. Were the plates real? You decide. 